There we go. What up, ladies and gents? Welcome to another episode, and check this out. It is my favorite day of the week, S-H-I-T. So happy it's Thursday. Shut up and sit down. The Business Bros Podcast was created for you. Learn from the business professionals who come to share their stories. Find out what's working in business on social media, what's hot and what's not, straight from the mouths of successful entrepreneurs out there doing the real work. And now, welcome to another episode of Business, business Pros. Rock <laughs> the heat. Here we go. All right, all you business pros out there. Before we jump into the show, just a quick reminder to please subscribe on whichever platform it is that you're listening to us on today. Give us a like, give us a follow, subscribe, and drop a review. Help other like-minded business owners find value from our awesome guests while we rise up in these podcast rankings. We'll sincerely appreciate every single one of you for it. And if you want to be a guest on the show, we'd love to have you on to learn from you as well. Go to www.businessbros.biz to schedule your time slot. Don't forget to follow us on all our social media at Business Bros Pod. Ladies and gents, we're so excited and so honored to bring yet another incredible guest to the Business Bros Pod. Today's guest is spicing things up in the product management and marketing space, having created a program that helps businesses take exceptional control of their product. Using his services, business owners accelerate customer value, build strategies, teams, systems, and methodologies that continually deliver breakthrough innovation and growth. Through personal guidance and mentorship, our guest is helping teams use agile principles and practices for product creation, management, marketing, and support. It's everything a business needs to launch, advertise, support, and retain those customers time and again. And our guest is no slouch. He himself has trained thousands of managers throughout the world amongst companies making billions of dollars in revenue. So if you want some guidance on how to maximize your product placement and marketing, hang tight for an awesome show. Joining us today from Spice Catalyst, welcome to the show, David Freiden. All right, David, I warned you, we play with StreamYard a completely different way than most people. Welcome to the program. Oh, thanks for putting up with me and uh, don't shoot. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I love to start with this question. We are a business show, which means most entrepreneurs on here are selling something. So, David, what is it that you're selling and how are you helping people? Uh, Two things. One is uh, product management and product marketing training. Actually, I prefer to call it product success management. And the second is uh, consulting services. If uh, a company needs some experienced uh, product managers or product marketing managers to put together and implement a product strategy, a product market strategy, or a product marketing strategy, then uh, my company, Spice Catalyst, is the place to go. Now, you've been doing this for quite some time. So launching a product uh, 20 years ago was different than launching a product today. I mean, everything from distribution to uh, even even manufacturing has all changed uh, through technology, through the internet, through all those types of things. Uh, walk me through your career in, in helping people create these insanely uh, – profitable products and, and launches. Uh, what have you seen as far as major changes and how, how has that changed the way you do business? Well, the fundamentals have not changed since the uh, dawn of history. 
And that is you've got to build a product or a service. And by the way, a service is nothing more than an intangible product. And it is treated the same way. Uh, but the major changes that I've seen over my 50 years in the business is primarily uh, the digitization, uh, the internet, uh, the ability to do things remotely like this, uh, this webcast, including uh, uh, Zoom meetings, which of course were uh, never practical before uh, 10 years ago, before we had the bandwidth to support it. And the second major thing, particularly on the, on the marketing side, is uh, social media. Uh, Ten years ago, almost nobody was doing social media. Today, it's probably consuming about 75% of a marketing budget, uh, which and it also goes direct to that adage of an advertising exec a few years ago said, I know I'm wasting 50% of my advertising dollars. I just don't know which 50%. Well, <laughs> now with uh, social media and the uh, ability of Facebook tracking you, including when you go to the bathroom, uh, they can do highly targeted uh, advertising, uh, which they thought would be very specific to your needs. Uh, but that, of course, can easily get manipulated by the algorithms that uh, seem to be easily fooled. So dealing with all of that, the, the overall social media marketing uh, has really increased the burden on uh, marketeers uh, to get the attention of their potential customers. Well, let's talk about, you know, back in the days, I'll share a little story. The very first business I ever had, our major marketing budget was in this big yellow book called the Yellow Pages, right? And it was a little bit different. You know, most people today, younger people today have no clue what the hell I'm talking about. Uh, we also used to use, uh, they're, they're like penny savers or, or little uh, monthly mailers that we used to put out. And then, of course, we did door hangers. So those were the traditional ways that, that I, we launched our initial first business. And you mentioned earlier that the fundamentals are the same. So take, you know, let's, let's make a comparison here. If I'm going back to those days where we're, we're doing direct mail, we're doing uh, you know, yellow page marketing compared to today's social media, what fundamentals are we talking about that, that need to, to remain strong? Well, the first thing is understanding your customer and what it is that they uh, want to do. But you can't ask them what they want to do, but you can observe what they're doing, what they're doing, where they're doing it, why they're doing it, how they're doing it, how important that thing that they're doing is to them, and how satisfied are they with the current solution. Once you have that, then you can do your market research and your competitive research and identify the personas of who you're targeting your product for or, to, or towards uh, for the development of the product in addition to the marketing of the product. With that information in hand, then you could do product positioning, which is a shelf space of the mind. And from there, you could derive your target markets, your uh, first initial market penetration strategies, your pricing strategy, your distribution strategy, your trading support and service strategies. With all of that in hand, which is what I call a product market strategy, then uh, you could throw it over the wall to development or engineering and they know exactly who they're developing the product for and what the product has to do for the customer. Uh, when they're done with it, then you hand it over to product marketing and they use that information of those personas and the product positioning for their messaging. And then they can put together uh, what uh, channels they're gonna use, which media channels they're gonna use, newspaper, print, billboards, uh, social media, and so forth. And uh, then they have the very clear messaging, which gives the offer along with a deadline for the customer to act along with uh, a, a pricing strategy. That Okay, so that was a really laid out plan. And what I've noticed in your plan was 
the product itself wasn't the first thing that was developed. Uh, and, and I know that oftentimes when we talk to solopreneurs, people who are just getting started in business, they come from a place where they have a shower idea. Something popped into their head and so they spend all kinds of time and money and effort creating a prototype for this thing that they think is going to be the next big product. But nowhere in your plan did that come first. Can you no, tell me why that doesn't work? Uh, because, well, I'll give you an example. About 40% of all new products developed each year fail, which represents a worldwide waste of somewhere in the neighborhoods of a half a billion, excuse me, a half a trillion to $1 trillion. And the primary reason, as Steve Jobs would say, it would flop up onto shore like a dead fish, is that you don't understand who your customer is, why they would want to buy it. Will it do what the customer wants to do uh, uh, faster, better, uh, or with higher quality and with style, which is what innovation is all about. So if you just start with the idea, uh, you have an idea. Uh, an example of that is back in 2003, I was given credit by RCN magazine, a telecommunications magazine, which is no longer around. Uh, and they gave me credit for inventing the first cell phone ad in 2003. And I had a, a little game developed for a cell phone called Maui Mountain Biking, and you go mountain biking down the uh, Haleakala, and when you fall off the mountain, uh, you get an ad that says, this, ad, this crash has been brought to you by Zeal Optical <laughs> or, or uh, uh, K2 Bikes or something like that. Um, but the problem is, back then, is not everybody had smartphones. Mm. And in fact, I went to a uh, angel investors uh, forum up in Marin County, and the guy that started, uh, what was it, Good, uh, Good Earth magazine or something like that, an ecological magazine about 20 years earlier, he was there and he says, I don't want ads on my cell phone. Well, good news to you, buddy. You got it, whether you like it or not. <laughs> and uh, I went around for the next couple of years uh, developing a bunch of uh, 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 advertising platforms, games that would run on your uh, cell phone, like one little one was a uh, virtual cigarette lighter. So if you go to a concert, you hold up your uh, cigarette lighter and you wave it back and forth on your cell phone uh, so that you can get an encore. And uh, of course, the name of the product was Encore Encore. And it even got written up in the Los Angeles Times because a lot of people were using it at the Hollywood Bowl. Uh, <laughs> but my distribution... <laughs> Thanks. Uh, but my distribution was such that uh, I had all my ad inventory in Europe but my sales force was in the United States, the advertising sales force, which was a disconnect. And I talked to about 200 venture capitalists and angel investors, and I couldn't find anybody that understood advertising, games, and cell phones. So as a result, I uh, exhausted all of my resources to try to chase funding uh, and eventually had to uh, put the uh, company out of business. You were, I think, just ahead of your game, right? I mean, you knew yeah. the power that was going to happen. Because, I mean, today, there are so many free games on a cell phone, and, and you don't even load them. They come preloaded. So the idea and the concept was there, but the market hadn't quite arrived yet. That's like the whole idea of Zoom. Zoom, was, Zoom has been there for a while, but it wasn't until COVID that it became mainstream. It wasn't until everybody had a cell phone or a smartphone in their hand that that became mainstream. So when you're describing going after that target audience, that do you think that uh, was the mistake that you you had? You had a great idea, you had a great concept, but you just didn't identify who the target audience was. Well, I pretty much knew what that was, but the problem is 
uh, as uh, Tony Ulrich from a company in San Francisco called uh, Synergen talks about. And the funny thing is that Tony was the uh, uh, manufacturing engineer on the IBM PC Junior when I was running the Apple III division at Apple at that same period of time. And uh, because of the failure of the PC Junior, of course, I never would understand why anybody would want to buy a Junior. <laughs> but uh, uh, he uh, uh, came up with this theory building upon outcome uh Outcome, uh, uh, outcome Desired Innovation, uh, which was a series of books that a Harvard uh, professor wrote about that concept. And he boiled that down to what he calls jobs to be done. Hmm. Uh, and I've gone further from that uh, to boil it down to even more pieces, which is what it is that your customer wants to do. And you have to identify at least 15 unmet needs that your product is able to satisfy better than the current way of doing things. And if you once you identify those 15 unmet needs, then there's going to be a market for you. Well, in the case of my cell phone advertising in 2003, there weren't any unmet needs out there. Ad agencies were not clamoring. The corporations were not clamoring to get ads on cell phones. It wasn't until around 2007 to 2009, after the iPhone came out, that the market began to open up. And today, uh, that market that I was targeting in 2003, the last time I saw a number, it's over $15 billion a year being sold on a cell phone. A lot of potential for aggressive expansion. <laughs> well, that's absolutely true. So. Okay, so you you were too early to market, right? And and I guess you know there's a lot of times that people have these ideas um, that maybe they are too early to market. And I love how you're describing those 15 things that you can look for in in your market so that you can identify these things ahead of time so that you have a market. What about market saturation? What about the other side of that? So I've I've read in books before that uh, there you know if if you if you go out and there is no market, there's nobody doing that. There's one of two things either the the audience doesn't exist or you're too early or the other side you're looking at uh at a market that does exist and there are a lot you know it was the example was the yellow pages you go on the yellow pages and you look for a, a plumber and there's a lot of people there's a lot of different plumbers is that a better opportunity to go into because you know the market does exist for that yeah a lot of people have said that uh, uh if there's no competitors in the marketplace then there's no market uh and an example of that is when uh, IBM joined uh, the PC marketplace, uh, the uh, uh, VP of communications of Apple at the time, a fellow by the name of Fred Hoare, uh, that's spelled F-R-E-D, as he would say. Uh, <laughs> he uh, uh, ran an ad, a full page ad in the Wall Street Journal that welcomed IBM to uh, the PC marketplace uh, because uh, this was around, I think, 1980, and Apple had already been in it for a couple of years. So he recognized that when IBM entered the, entered the marketplace, it legitimatized it. And so the headline on the ad says, welcome IBM, comma, seriously. And uh, <laughs> Fred was a tremendous uh, master of ceremonies. And he said his friends on Wall Street called him up and said, uh, that's a lot like electing to play catch with a javelin and deciding to receive first. <laughs> Fine by me. <laughs> I don't know if I'd want to receive a javelin first. Well, so the, the key back to your question or your comment about market saturation, uh, the market opens up when you've identified 15 unmet needs. And the way you do that is first by observing the market like a social anthropologist 
then interviewing maybe 50 to 100 of your target customers. And then based upon those interviews, uh, you can get a uh, survey uh, uh, instrument put together. And then you survey a representative sample of the personas or the target markets that you're thinking of. And then you can use those numbers from the bottom up to project what the market size is. And then uh, given the resources you have available, what kind of sales and revenues and return on investment that you can have. At the same time, in terms of market uh, saturation, uh, a few years ago, I, when I was teaching at uh, Cisco, they're, they're, they're my number one client now, and I've trained about a third of all the product managers at Cisco worldwide. Uh, someone said, how do you know when the market window is closed? And I thought about that for a moment, and that's when there's a lot of competitors in the market that are satisfying those same needs, those same dues, as well as you are, maybe at a lower price, and that's when you shift to the Boston Consulting Group, uh, uh, the cash cow, and just try to milk it. So the open question has been, everyone knows that there's a window of opportunity to get in and then get out, but we've never figured out how to do that. I think I've identified that, and it's when you've identified 15 unmet needs, and then when those 15, un and that's when you enter the market, and then those 15 unmet needs had been satisfied by a lot of competitors and a lot of resources, then that's the time to exit the market uh, via the uh, cash cow method. You think we'll, uh, we can also see a price correlation with that? So, you know, when you're entering the market, you're, you're unique. There's not very much competition. So you can command a higher price. When the market gets saturated with your competitors, all of a sudden it's a race to the bottom. Everybody's trying to undercut their competition. Uh, and so when you talk about those 15 needs being met, would you say there's a correlation between the price of, or the, the value of your product or service also going down? Well, the price of the product has to represent the value of the product. But the way you avoid the race to the bottom is you continually enhance and improve uh, the existing product. Uh, and a classic example is the iPhone, which we are now on to the uh, 12th version of that. Oh, yeah. Prices come down a little bit, uh, but uh, for the most part, it stayed there as a premium pricing uh, strategy. So... Um, uh, Yes, except if you're constantly enhancing and improving the product. And in fact, uh, before Apple entered the marketplace, uh, the uh, turnover for the next model was about two years or a little bit more. Now it's one year. And you notice how Samsung, who tries to compete for market share and only on price, they try to announce their new cell phone a couple, three weeks before Apple makes their announcement. But Apple's done such a good job with customer satisfaction uh, that, in fact, uh, for the first time in four years, uh, Apple sold more units uh, than Samsung did. Mm. And that's, that also has to do with the culture they're creating amongst their client base. I, lo I love what they're doing. It's always a great model. Let's shift a little bit over. You Earlier you said that a service is nothing more than – it's very similar to a product, right? So. Right. Let, let's shift over to the service base. You went from going products to actually becoming a consultant, which is very much more service-based. How do those things, how, are they, how do you say that those things are similar uh, and how are they different just a little bit? Well, it's the same things. You have to understand what it is that your service is going to do uh, for your customer and that they want that, that kind of service, what the personas are, what the competitors are, what the market is. Uh, what the product positioning is, uh, what's the pricing strategy, what's the distribution strategy, 
what's the target market, what's the market penetration, how you do all those things. Now, if you're providing a government service, like the new COVID vaccine uh, website that's uh, coming up uh, from the, I think the CDC, where you can go up there, they're testing it now and say, hey, I want to get a vaccine. I'll tell you where to go uh, and get your vaccine. You know, that, of course, you know who the target market is right off the top of your head. Uh, and then uh, you follow that through with the things that I mentioned earlier in terms of your, your marketing strategy. Um, in the case of uh, services, uh, I have an extremely difficult problem because I have to find people and companies that are concerned about product success. But a lot of them are following uh, Alfred Sloan's uh, rules for accounting, which date back to 1910. That's the only thing that's taught these days, which says inventory is an asset, which was a fantastic asset that Federal Motors had back in 2007 when the Great Recession started. Uh, they were unable to convert their 19 million uh, automobiles into cash and it wasn't for the federal government bailing them out. Uh, the, the American automotive industry would not exist. <clears throat> but um, the balance sheets and everybody on Wall Street has been trained that inventory is an asset. Uh, the second big uh, problem with accounting is that uh, people are a liability. Mm -hmm. uh, yet at companies like where I work, Hewlett Packard and, and at Apple, uh, they view the people as their most valuable resource. And in fact, when HP went through downturns uh, and over the years that they've been around since 1938 until probably the last 10 years where they dropped their values, which are very important, uh, that whenever there was a downturn, people would voluntarily work nine days out of every 10. So everybody could stay employed at the company. And then when the recession is finally over, uh, the company came shooting out of that recession like a, like a rocket ship. Uh, Apple did the same thing back in the, during the Great Recession. And in addition to that, they spent even more money on research and development, which is what Steve Jobs was told by uh, Dave Packard, uh, which I found and researched for my book, uh, Building and Sailing Great Products, uh, such that they then rocketed uh, to the front of the head of the line in terms of the cell phone business and uh, pretty much put BlackBerry uh, out of business. So let's talk about the people capital, because I, I agree with you. People are very valuable, especially when you find true assets to your business that are helping you function your day-to-day -day stuff, helping you grow your bottom line, salespeople, those sorts of things. Those are all great uh, people to have on your team. And today we've opened up, a we've made the world smaller with the capability of having Zoom calls and, and you know, using uh, um companies like Upwork or Fiverr, there's different types of access to much more talent around the world. How do you feel about utilizing that talent in different places, even though it might not be a person that clocks in and clocks out at your particular office? Yeah, I'm not bothered by that. I've been working uh, remotely since uh, 1990, uh, so I'm, I'm used to this. Uh, and I've got uh, three assistants uh, in India that help me out with my social media marketing and my administrative things. And then I have uh, uh, Professor Moni in India that teaches for Manipal uh, ProLearn University. And he teaches my courses to Cisco in Europe that eliminates me having to wake up at four o'clock in the morning. 
Uh, and, uh, and then one of my former clients, uh, Dean Stewart, who was the VP of product management at Diebold, which the, is the company that makes ATM machines, uh, he's retired and now he teaches my classes in, uh, in North America. So I don't have any problem trusting people and uh, uh, knowing that they're going to do a good job because one of the values that I have is that uh, people will operate based upon their own self-interest. Uh, uh, which will, and, and if, if their self-interest is aligned with my self-interest of, of my company, Spice Catalyst, then everything just works out just fine. Uh, I don't believe in the theory X of management where you have to look over somebody with a whip and a chain. So how do you, how have you been finding those particular people? I mean, the ones that you've, you've spoken about, you've, I, you've specifically worked with, but as you were, as you were growing your business prior to working with them, how were you filling those shoes? How were you putting those people in the right seat? Where were you, what, is there any type of, uh, you know, specific interviewing skill that you used or a pool that you fished out of to find those people? I, um, lately I would go to LinkedIn and then I would, uh, ask folks if they might be interested in teaching my classes. Uh, and I picked up a few people that way and a few people failed. Uh, I found that today though, people just don't have the discipline to buckle down and do the work. And it's not much work. Uh, I wanna, if I want someone to teach my class, first they gotta be experienced uh, and having done the product management or product marketing for at least 10 years or more. Then I want them to sit through my online class, and then I want them to read my books, including the one from Wiley, which is being used uh, in an uh, executive uh, uh, MBA school uh, in India at IIML, which I understand is a very prestigious uh, MBA school. And it's being used for a seven-month executive education program in product success management. Uh, it's a little pamphlet. It's only 796 pages long. And it's available. <laughs> <laughs> it's available up on uh, on Amazon for like ten dollars, uh, and uh, so I want them to go through all of that. Then I want them to teach the class while I listen in, uh, and then they're on their own. And very few people um, commit the time and effort to get that done. It's very lucrative in terms of what I pay uh, the instructors. You can make some good money on it. And I've had a uh, couple, three people that I put out to Cisco and have them uh, teach. Uh, and uh, the Cisco uh, students have come back and given them low enough ratings uh, that I've had to let them, let them go. So for my business, it's a lot harder than for other people's business. <laughs> but but it still gets done right it's still it's yeah. still you're finding those people and that's the that's the thing you you pay your people well you uh retain those people but it's kind of hard to hop, they got to hop through some hoops in order to get there uh, yeah. i want to make sure that we give you enough time to talk about the different things that you're offering the books the classes the consulting so let people know uh you know if they want to work with you if they have a product that they know that you're going to take it to the next level and they don't want to make those mistakes and just be one of those 40 percent that that fall off, how can they get a hold of you and uh, what stuff are you offering? Uh, they can uh, send me an email to dave at uh, spicecatalyst.com. Uh, I'll give anybody that uh, wants some uh, free advice uh, an hour of my time reviewing their business plan, uh, discussing their, uh, their ideas and their needs and make some suggestions. And then if there's something from there on that I can help find, if they want to take one of my classes and they're, they're just a sole entrepreneur, 
I recommend they go to Udemy, U-D-E-M-Y, uh, and all of my courses are up there. Look me up as uh, the author. Uh, also at my website, there's a whole page that has all the courses that are available. If they're an organization and they have like uh, five to 10 or more people, they would like to get trained and accelerate their success uh, opportunity, uh, then we can put together a custom uh, training course uh, that right now we would deliver uh, virtually. Uh, in the future, we might be able to uh, deliver uh, in person along with vaccines and testing. Awesome. All right. So you have a show. Uh, you've been here now on the Business Bros podcast. I told you StreamYard was a little bit different. So what do you think of, uh, of our overall production? What do you think of uh, the way we're putting it to, to, together our show? I like it. Uh, it keeps it entertaining. And uh, that's what people, especially people today, uh, generally don't read anymore. They prefer to watch a video. Oh yeah, hundred I mean, percent. Well, you know what? And then the other thing is audio, right? I mean, I do a lot of reading, but I say reading when it's really, I do a lot of listening. <laughs> it's, it's quite a, a little bit different, but it's still, it's the way I, I take in information. I do read, uh, I do read, but never as fast as I can on the audio version. Uh, what, what kind of stuff are you reading? Mentors, podcast stuff that you're listening to? Um, I I'm typically now just following politics since, uh, I used to be in politics. I, uh, ran, uh, a successful gubernatorial campaign in Minnesota, and then I ran a presidential campaign in Minnesota, which was not as successful. Uh, and uh, uh, I found that what I learned in politics is uh, very applicable to business and business marketing. And there too, you need to understand the personas of who you're trying to communicate to and what the value proposition that you're trying to communicate. Uh, I follow a, a number of um, conferences and, and websites uh, like uh, Product uh, Management Festival out of uh, uh, Switzerland. Uh, I'm on the board of the International Software Product Managers Association, and they put out a, a nice newsletter. Uh, and things, those, those kinds of things that are out there. There's tons of stuff on it. Uh, there's tons of it on Medium, uh, which uh, a lot of which is fairly well written and fairly well thought out. Well, David, that's a, I mean, everything you've shared today has been valuable information. Everything from, I mean, I love the idea of having those, you know, 15 things that we can identify with, uh, with our particular uh, audience out there, you know, the order of which to do things so that we know how to get a, a product or service to launch effectively and successful. So I want to thank you for coming on the show and sharing that insight with us. I, uh, I mean, you have so much wisdom over the years of what you've done from politics to actually launching a business to, co to coaching and consulting. Uh, you know, it, I can't believe, uh, I mean, the billions of dollars that you've uh, been a part of in a weird way, been able to touch. Uh, that's super impressive. So thank you for coming on the show. Uh, thanks for putting up with me. <laughs> I love how you say that. Ladies and gents, look, that's what it comes down to. I, I keep telling you guys every single day, the power of podcasting is here. Like this is, this is a great way to meet new people. It's the cheat code to life right now. I mean, you get to read a book and that's great, but what if you can speak to the author and ask them a direct question? That's even more valuable. If you need help starting a podcast, you want to have something cool, like our show, let me know. Just go to businessbros.biz. There's a little podcast link down there to help you get your podcast mentoring. Go ahead and hit that. And I'll help you guys get started because I'm telling you, there's no better way to learn than from people who have already done it. Dave, thank you. I think he's wonderful. David, thank you again for coming on the show. I love him too. <laughs> I love him too. <laughs> All right, ladies and gents, happy S-H-I-T. So happy it's Thursday. We'll see you again manana. Peace, and we're out.
Thank you for listening to the Business Bros Podcast. Are you looking to get more clients or to increase your income? Hernan, the business bro, can help you generate referrals through the power of podcasting. And James, the insurance bro with Pipeline Insurance, can help you effectively add insurance to your existing business. If you are ready to create wealth today and generational wealth for tomorrow, email businessbros at csfirst.com to schedule a free consultation or join the Business Bros Network, www.businessbros.biz.